1: Good morning. Today is Wednesday, March 14th, 2018. You're listening to Red Sea Roundup, and I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm. We have a very interesting program for you today. Uh, The first part is going to be very abbreviated because the guests that I have for the second part, Pete and Sue Fullerton, and I could have talked for an hour and a half, and we had to cut it down quite a bit. Uh, I am very happy to say that. a year ago, this I would have been on March 14th on a Tuesday, and now it's on a Wednesday. And I'm going to repeat some things from then because today is Pi Day, March 14th, 3.14. And it's also the Feast of St. Matilda. And as I said last year, I had two aunts named Matilda, both of whom were very strong women and who did a lot for their family and uh, worked hard to help support their families. Uh, the, the Saint Matilda herself uh, was uh, from Westphalia, which is a part of Germany, and uh, she uh, had. A, she's the patroness of large, of parents of large families, and she had two sons who were rather contentious and that seemed to be at war all the time. And she tried to work with them, and it didn't always work out. And then they got very upset after. Her husband died, and she was spending money on the poor. And eventually, I guess they were afraid that she was not going to work with them very much uh, and help them, leave them uh, any type of an inheritance. So eventually, she uh, gave it all away to the poor and joined a, a religious order. Okay, and we've got uh, this is we're still in the middle of Lent, and we've got several t- opportunities for for uh, uh, penance ceremonies. Uh, left, and you can find those on our website. There are three more left here in the Brazos Valley, uh, and there's about I think there are three more up in the Waco area. So you can check our website or with your local parish for that. Uh, my guests today are uh, Pete and Sue Fullerton, and uh, I wish I'd had, an, as I say, I wish I had an hour and a half to interview them. But we've got some stuff going on with Red Sea Radio right now, don't we, Thaddeus?
0: Well, that's right, Gene. We do have our benefit dinner coming up in Waco for KYAR 98.3 yeah. FM. And welcome to all those folks in the central Texas area listening to us this morning. And, of course, our good friends at 107.9 FM LP in Palestine, Texas. Um, believe it or not, we had a we had a Palestine native son on last week. Look, uh, Troy Guy is a was born in Palestine, Texas. Now he's a nuclear and aero, uh, sorry, an aerospace engineer now in the Houston area, and is a Catholic speaker and writer.
1: I heard part of that. Uh, I was yeah, I in like and...
0: interviewed him. Yeah,
1: very interesting
2: interview.
0: But he mentioned off the air that he grew up in Palestine. So that was that was pretty neat little uh, coincidence. But anyway, uh, I digress. We have our our. Second annual benefit dinner coming up in Waco. It is Thursday night, April 19th at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Waco, headlined by none other than Patrick Madrid coming to town to speak with us about a course in Eucharistic miracles.
1: That should be very interesting talk.
0: Oh, it's it's one of the most I think in my own mind it's something that I just I go back to anytime I have that little uh voice of you know doubt or wonder or you know is this am i am i following the the right the right path you know when I have those moments of of doubt remembering those Eucharistic miracles brings me back because they're They're powerful witnesses to the truth, wouldn't you say?
1: Yes, they are. And and this, uh, some people think that the age of miracles passed with the uh, close of the Book of Acts, uh, which is really very much far from the truth. There Mm -hmm. are miracles occurring every day around the world, Mm -hmm. and we just don't recognize them as miracles. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's especially those those Eucharist miracles are especially convincing for. The truth that we proclaim of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Yes, yes, yes. So we we and and Patrick is a wonderful speaker. I mean, I know all of all of y'all who are listening. You probably just got done listening to him wrap up his show for today. He's really entertaining. He's been in the Brazos Valley. Um, I think at least I know at least once before, maybe twice.
1: He was here for the Red Sea Radio Banquet mm-hmm. here one time, That's and right. That's several I years ago, and I don't remember where what year it was.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's gonna it'll be a wonderful evening, a good meals, some beer and wine. Uh, you'll have great company of your fellow Red Sea listeners. You'll get to meet hopefully meet some people you don't know, get reacquainted with friends in the area that you do know, and uh, and also Patrick's going to do a live show from Baylor. Uh, the next, the next day, he's going to do his show live from uh, from Baylor University.
1: I hope that he has an opportunity to talk to Dr. Corey Carbonara, part of that show.
0: Yeah, we're trying to arrange maybe a luncheon with uh, with some of the faculty, the Catholic faculty and Thomas of Baylor. H- uh, P- Thomas uh, Higgs, is it? I believe. Uh, I know Michael that? Foley's there. I know that um, the guy who writes the Catholic Thing blog is also a professor there too, and okay. I'm not remembering his yeah. name apologies if okay. if you're listening. So but again, April 19th, Thursday night, and they can get
1: tickets Red by C, going to radio.org,
0: radio. $25 for an individual ticket or come sponsor a table. It's it is filling fast, honest to god. Um so get in there and get your tickets if you're if you're hemming and hawing at all, don't hem and haw. Get in there now and get so, your tickets. So what it be about 300
1: of your closest friends. Yeah. That's what we're, that's what we're hoping for. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that uh, folks are wanting to do that. We, we've got just a few minutes left. I want to go back to the interview with uh, with uh, Pete and Sue Fullerton. Yeah. Uh, Mary and I met them a number of years ago at a uh, uh, couples retreat out in California, and we're just totally impressed with them. And they've, they've done ministry all over. And one of the places they've done ministry is down in Arizona at one of the Indian reservations. Uh, in a couple of months, a month, two or three months, I will be having a, a priest friend of ours, uh, who is doing ministry out of the Phoenix Diocese, also to some of the same people of the same tribe as Pete and Sue were, hmm. and uh, they, he, his group, his religious order. Has revitalized Catholicism on the reservations where they are. So there's God is working very much so with the Native Americans, and uh, we need to support when we can. And Pete and Sue's web address is truckoflove.org. Truck of love. Truckoflove.org. And if you go to the music page, you can hear some of the music that Pete plays and sings. He he was a rock singer, before he uh, turned a person working for the poor. Wow. So it should be quite quite a story, quite an inspiring story. It's quite a story, and and, uh, you can, they have a book, uh, Sue has written a book called House of Yes, which tells the story of the truck of love ministry. And Pete wrote a book called Old Men Dream that chronicles his uh, three months where he lived as a homeless person so he could know more how to minister to the homeless. And with that, what, are we about done here? We got about one minute. One minute. So. Yeah.
0: so did you, is it appropriate? I wanted to ask you, is it appropriate on National Pie Day to eat a piece of pie or is it more appropriate to do math problems involving the number pie?
1: Yes. Because, you <laughs> Yes. You know, if you want to find out the area of the pie that you're going to eat, you need the number pie to yeah, figure that out. Right. Unless you make your pies square. Pi r squared is how you, you know, but, that's right. but everybody knows pies are round.
0: That's right. Pies are round. That's right. Very good, Gene. <laughs> we, 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 it wouldn't be a normal day without you going out on a pun. <laughs> All right. So we'll, I think we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, take it to break here. Do you got anything... Anything else for us or go, go ahead? How
1: can I top that?
0: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> go out on a high note. Go out on a high note.
1: Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm, and I have with me t- today some guests that you probably have never heard of because they're not n- anywhere nearby here in this part of Texas. I've got Pete and Sue Fullerton who are currently living in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and they have a very interesting story to tell. You've heard the the music coming in, and that was music that Pete did when it was – a number one hit back in the '60s. Pete, thank and Sue, thank you so much for being my guest today. How are you doing?
2: Great, great.
1: <laughs> I am so glad. To be with you. <laughs> well, it's been a long All time. Right. We've been talking about this for quite some time, and it's finally here. And our program today is pre-recorded because although Pete and Sue are both technically retired, they lead very busy lives there in Rock Hill, and they could not be with us live when this was broadcast pete tell me a little bit about yourself and, and how how did you get involved in music in the first place because you had when i go ahead
2: oh i was going to say that when i was 13 my grandmother gave me a, a guitar that my great 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 grandfather made and i told her that i would be interested in restringing it and making it work as a, as an instrument so i started playing when i was 13. And I started singing and playing around uh, all the way till I was 16. And then I put the guitar down just because I had picked up a bass. And I started playing the bass in different bands. And I found out I was pretty good at it. And other different bands wanted me to play with them. So I had to make a decision where I was going to go with the bass. And it was a stand-up bass, the double bass. Yes. And I took it. And recorded with it with a group called we Five, and on take thirteen, we took that take, and we spread it throughout the country, and they liked it so much we spread it throughout the world, and they liked it so much they decided okay it 's a hit <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and then after that you, you you toured with we five for some time didn 't you
2: Oh, yes, yeah. a year and a half, at least a year and a half um, through the country, but we didn 't get really outside the country. We, we went from college campus to college campus. There were some that were very nice and some that were not very good. Mm-hmm. And we, we experienced all kinds of fine people and all kinds of prejudices. But I missed my family too much and decided that I would just stay home.
1: Because at this time, when you're doing this touring, you were already married, were you not?
2: Yes.
3: Yeah, yes. we got married about in the middle of it. Yes.
1: And tell us a little bit about how you met. And uh, that's a very interesting story, too.
3: I'll I'll let Sue take this. She's good. I was a nursing student at the University of San Francisco, and my best friend had sung with a couple of guys in our freshman year who had left to go seek their fortune in music. They had come back to San Francisco when we were in our sophomore year, and they had with them a new bass player, And she had met him and she said, oh, you got to meet this guy, Meet this guy. (laughs) So we finally arranged to meet one Saturday. Um, They were late coming to meet me. Uh, When I finally ran into them on the steps of St. Mary's Hospital, it was a very quick hello because they had to go in and eat. I'd already had lunch. And I was walking down the steps and I thought, hmm, he looks pretty interesting. I turned around to look and he was looking at me and, we always like to say it was love at first sight. It was. <laughs> that it's
1: not everybody can say that. I can say that. <laughs> Marion sure. and I can say that, and but we, not everybody can say that.
3: Right. Yeah. We were married about nine months later, I guess.
1: Yes. And then, so then you quit nursing school to become a full-time wife and eventually mother, right?
3: Yes. It, in those days, because this is, you know, ancient, it's, Long time ago, fifty three yeah, fifty three years ago, because we met fifty three years ago. Um, in those days, you, they didn't, they did not encourage married nursing students. So uh, as soon as I realized that this was the man for me, I quit school and we got married and sort of lived happily ever after. <laughs> mm. then,
1: now you, you, this this young this uh, friend of yours that uh, introduced you to Pete uh, became yes. became very close to her and to her husband. Did you not?
3: Yeah, the four of us did everything together, and we were we were very close. Um, and it was really because of her that we got involved with Truck of Love. Um, she and her husband Michael were out with uh, some of his insurance clients one night, and they were hit by a drunk driver, and she was killed. And so Pete and I, at that point, kind of we were. I was 28. I think he was 26 because um, I'm the older woman.
2: Yeah. yeah. The older woman in his life, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Cradle yeah. <laughs> Uh
3: We looked at our life and kind of went, oh, you know, we wish, we wish we could do something in her memory, in Julie's memory. Um, but, you know, we just felt like we wanted to do more. And so our our good friend Gordon Stewart had this little project he had where he was collecting food and clothes and taking him to a Franciscan priest in the Arizona desert. And we asked him if we could get involved. And he, of course, wisely said yes.
1: And this ministry was already named, was it not?
3: It was. He had been taking these truckloads for a couple of years and his 13 year old daughter had said, we ought to call it something. And she said, they're truckloads of love. So they called it Truck of Love. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. To our listeners, uh, in the event that you hear something here and you want to know more about this, Sue has written a book called, what is it, Sue?
3: It is called House of Yes. And 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 we had some discussion about that title. Uh, We were with our youngest son, and just going back and forth with titles and, and House of Yes came up and we kind of all went, Yeah, that's Yeah, it. that's perfect. Because for us in our lives we've tried, you know, as we've as we've grown and, and matured and realized what we're doing, we've we we realize that we've tried to listen to God and we've tried to say yes when God asks something
2: of us. And and I'm inspired by Mary's Mary's answer to uh to the uh, angel gabriel when she said yes to him so i'm inspired by that and, and i think more lately than then
1: i think and I, I you probably didn't know any more about what you were getting into than she did
2: Nope, that's (laughs) exactly right. We were
3: talking about that today. We had no clue. We had Uh. no clue. And, you know, all we did was in the beginning, we just said to Gordon, we'd like to help organize the truck. And he said, sure. So (laughs) we sent out letters to our mailing list. It was about 50 people. And people wanted to do something in memory of Julie. And Pete drove off with Gordon that that, uh, Thanksgiving, not having a clue where he was going. The response was
2: overwhelming. Now, was
1: it, Go ahead. it going to, okay. it, you were going to Arizona. Is that the same reservation that you later had a later ministry at? Or was that somewhere else in Arizona?
2: Yes. No, it's the
3: same, same it's one. Same, same one. Same area. Yeah. The, the original, the original trip was to a place called. Aquahela. Well, it was called. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm missing it. Uh, Guadalupe. Yeah, Guadalupe. Guadalupe, Arizona. Um, and. It's it is just outside of Phoenix. It's now surrounded by Tempe. It's a small area where the Yaqui Indians live. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh the place where we have done the camp for many years is a different reservation, a much larger reservation, the Tonoptum reservation, and that's southwest of and, Tucson.
1: And the tribe that you minister to there is the
3: I They cannot... are called Tohana Ottum. Uh, one Sometimes more time. Known as Papago, yeah, <laughs> Tohono O'Utum. Okay. They they're they used to be known as Papago. Papago was the name the Spaniards gave them, which meant bean eaters. <laughs> and they make baskets. The ba- Papago baskets are known throughout the world, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's go back a little bit, and yeah. so you you just sort of eased into Truck of Love with Gordon. And so you're doing that part time and and were you both working at that time or did you have enough of a family that you stayed at home, Sue and Pete was working and trying to take care of all of this as well?
3: Yeah, so Pete was working at at a variety of jobs. By this time, he had left music completely and was working with some construction companies doing some labor and stuff. And I was doing kind of part time work wherever I could find it, taking care of people in their homes or babysitting that kind of thing
2: mm. money was not was always an issue, but it was never the the guiding force of our work, so we didn't really make a lot.
1: Now were you already were you were you already living in this house that is shown on the front of the House of yes book
3: Yeah, we had moved there when our oldest son was five. And um, so, we yes, we were, we were living there in that, in that little house. It was uh, about 1,200 square feet, had three bedrooms, and a nice big yard. Mm-hmm. And uh, we welcomed a whole lot of people through
2: there. At one time, we had 18 people living in that house. My oldest daughter, Julie, asked me if I had a picture of it when I drew it. And the only picture I had when I drew it was in my mind. She said, it's exactly right. I, said, well, I know. My yeah, mind's perfect. <laughs> and, and
1: that's interesting And it, for our listeners. The whole story, like I said, is in the House of Yes, which I guess you self-published because I don't see a publisher uh, in.
3: That's correct.
1: And uh, that's correct. Sue wrote the book except for the foreword. And Pete did all of the illustrations and the illustrations are just absolutely astounding to me. I mean, they are so they're so good. So you have Thank more you. talents yeah. than just singing and playing uh, a musical instrument.
2: Well, it's like love. If you don't give it away, it's not really a gift, is it? <laughs> and and
1: and in your book, you have a book also that you wrote called "Old Men Dream," and this this has been several years ago, and all the illustrations in there are yours as well, correct?
2: Yes, that's correct. All oh. my original illustrations for that got wet and kind of spewed out. So I had to redraw them kind of in a hurry to get the book out. But nevertheless, they are all mine. Yes. Let's let's
1: proceed a little bit. So you're working at this part time and and Pete's doing various jobs to bring in money. And all of a sudden and then eventually, Pete, you went to work. Was it for Lockheed? Yes, I did. And and that was a pretty lucrative job, wasn't it?
2: It was the the most lucrative job I'd ever had, but it was like going to prison every day. I You had to check in and check out at the front gate, and then you had to clock in and clock out at the time clock. And there was plenty of room for advancement, which I made, all the way from a labor grade one to a labor grade nine lead man, and then to a salaried person, which you have to have a bachelor's degree to get, which I did not have. And then when I left, which was six years later, <clears throat> excuse me, when I left six years later, I told them I was leaving for good. And this was in 1986, I think, when we started Above full time. And they said, well, well, we'll hold off and let you uh, think about it for a year and then we'll call you back in a year. Yep. And so a year later, they called back and I wasn't going to go back. <laughs>
1: Ah, you enjoyed your freedom too much. You'd rather be no, you'd yeah. rather be the slave of Jesus Christ than the slave of Lockheed.
2: <laughs> Amen, brother <laughs> <laughs> they, they
3: they really thought he was pretty crazy to give up oh, yeah. his job. But yeah.
1: uh, but they thought Jesus yeah. But they thought Jesus was crazy too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's <They> said, right. <laughs> now, well, he was right there with me. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> But this, this going full-time didn't happen all of a sudden. This was something that happened sort of gradually, correct?
3: Mm-hmm. I- yeah. So we'd done Truck of Love part-time for many years, and then Gordon died in – I don't even remember what year. 78. But, okay, so 78. Gordon died, and we kept it up. We kept up the two trucks each year. But every – You know, every so often we'd have these discussions about we want to do more, we want to do more, and we really felt what we now realize was God calling us to do more, and that meant Pete doing this full time, and so in 1986 we bit the bullet. We we kept kind of going around and around, and and we had a good friend who was a priest who kept saying, why why don't you just do it, just do it, God's going to take care of you. so we did. We just did it. And that's when the guys at Lockheed thought Pete was crazy. You mm-hmm. know, that, so they gave him a, a leave of absence instead of letting him quit. Yeah. And uh, you know we've, we've never really looked back. We certainly had some times when we wondered what was going to be on the table to eat. Mm-hmm. But we, we always were able to feed our family. We always had a roof over our head. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's worked. It's worked.
1: <laughs> but even that decision, uh, as you outline in the book, You two didn't just make that decision on your own. You asked your children about this, didn't you?
2: That is so true. We did. We did. We found out many years later that uh, even though we asked them and they all said, oh, yeah, go for it, uh, which they actually did, Uh, my daughter said, Oh man, we're going to have to say yes one way or the other. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. they, I think they knew that their parents were a little off. <laughs> yeah,
1: but <laughs> we're weird. Yeah. But that was a good off.
3: Oh yeah, yeah yes, I think yes. so. Yeah, but the, yeah, and you mentioned the well, you mentioned the foreword of the book that was written by our youngest son, and he, in in uh, collusion with his siblings, and yeah. uh, you know they they understand. Sure that life are. life with Truck of Love was difficult for them, certainly, because they didn't have all the things they wanted. Uh, but they know it was better than anything they could have imagined, just as we do, because we the benefits far out-
2: outweigh anything else. And every one of them have told us that it's the best thing that ever happened to them to that point.
1: And one of the things that you also point out in the book is that your house, even though it was a tiny little house that, probably most people wouldn't want to live in, you were surrounded by very affluent people. And most of your children's friends were very affluent who had all the latest toys and gadgets and the nicest clothes that money could buy.
3: (laughs) Yes, indeed, we were. (laughs) uh, We lived in an area of California that is among the richest areas in the world, really, and uh, our little house had one bathroom, and as I said, three bedrooms. And sometimes, you know, we'd be lining up outside that bathroom. <laughs> it was, I can imagine. It was
1: um, that would be, yeah. even if you, it was just your family, and you often had more people right. there. One of the things, oh, your, yeah. your son Andy wrote the forward to House of Yes. Mm-hmm. And the thing that tickled me most out of the whole thing is where he talks about pulling up to pick up a girl, or I believe it was pick up a girl for a date and having this truck of love emblazoned on the side of a van that he's coming to pick up the girl and trying to convince the father of the girl that, that <laughs> there was something crazy going on there.
3: Right. <laughs> we, we'd go down the street in that van, and and people would make very strange uh, gestures at us. And yeah. <laughs> all sorts of things. Less than a full hand, uh, yeah. some of them. Yeah, so— <laughs> Uh, Yeah, it was. It was sometimes awkward. Andy got to the point where he would not even drive to school with me because I worked in the high school. By the time he was in high school, and he would not drive with me in the mornings. Uh, He rode a bike or walked uh, to high school because he didn't want to be seen in the van.
1: And that high school, a job in the high school, you you point out in your book too, was a real gift from God. Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about how that came about, Sue.
3: We, we love this because Pete was working at Lockheed and he had worked his way up to a salaried position and he was earning more money than we'd ever had. And he, it, he was not happy doing that. So he was going to stop being a salary person, go back to hourly wage, be demoted. And um, we realized that we were going to be short about $900 a month. And that I was going to need to get a a job. So we talked about what in the world I could do because I had no real education. I had a lot of different things I could do. And we thought about working in a school because then I'd have summers off with the kids because I didn't want to be gone all the time. And a friend called um, from out of town who had worked at St. Francis High School in Mountain View. And he said he had just talked to the dean of students and they needed a new attendance clerk. And would I be interested Well, I had to go to school that night for some kind of meeting. I happened to run into the dean of students who I had not yet met because my daughter had been working for him. She was on the work program. Our kids were on the work program in high school because we didn't have enough money to pay the tuition there. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. So um, I went up to him and I said, hi, my name is Sue Fullerton. And he just stopped me. He said, I just talked to Jerry, our mutual friend. And he said, you might be interested in coming to work here. So I interviewed the next day, and the job paid just the nine hundred dollars that we were to be short each month. Perfect.
1: Isn't that God's? So I started.
3: Ah, oh, yes. amen. yeah. <laughs> we we definitely saw God paying in that one. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> yes, and uh, that is so. And we don't see we don't think of that frequently when those things happen to us.
2: And so, Isn't that too bad? Yes, it, it is really too is. bad.
1: It really is too bad. Uh, you, and you, that job, did a lot of other things. You you didn't you weren't just satisfied with that. And, and the other thing that I remember that you talked about in the book is ministry to the young people. And I believe you were also doing youth group for your local parish at this time, and feeding people yes. frequently at the house. And I'm sure that you must have had a multiplication of loaves and fishes occasionally to <laughs> feed everybody that showed up.
3: Yes. Yes. So we'd gotten involved with the youth ministry in the parish a little bit before I started working at St. Francis because our kids were teenagers. Our oldest kids were teenagers. They were in high school. And so we would host dinners before the youth group meetings on Monday nights. And so anywhere from 20 to 40 kids would show up in our little house. And I would put on a pot of spaghetti, and I'd make salad and some French bread, and they would bring anything else. And so we always had enough. And uh, then we'd race off after about 45 minutes. We'd race off and have our youth group meetings. And uh, that was a tradition for 10 years we did that.
2: That's why I play guitar a lot at youth group meetings and also when we were on with our camps. Yeah. Yeah. So
3: then our youth group got involved with us because one thing after another, the youth minister uh, approached me, I think, this at the end of the first year that I was working at St. Francis. And he said, I... I've had a flyer come across my desk and, and I want to go to Mexico with some of the kids. And I said, Oh, I want to go too. Mm-hmm. Cause I'd always thought about working in a foreign country mm-hmm. and he had been doing his little trips with truck of love. And I, I hadn't done, yeah, I hadn't done much of anything I didn't think. So I, um I went with the youth minister and, and the few kids to Mexico and that was our first trip to Mexico. And it was so eye opening uh, for me. I met women who were mothers like me, who were trying to raise their families, who lived in extraordinarily poor circumstances that I could never have imagined. But they, they wanted the same things for their kids. They wanted, they wanted their kids to be educated, and
2: they wanted their kids to be well-fed, and they wanted their kids to be healthy. And At it, that point, Sue was, uh, Sue was with me in, along in everything I did, uh, but she didn't really get the fact that when you're in the trenches it changes everything and yes becomes a common part of your life. And when she went to Mexico, it changed everything for Sue.
1: Now this was, was this, Oh, Scooby, go ahead. I interrupted. Oh no, go ahead. This was, this was in the dump at Tijuana that you went the first time.
3: So yeah, this was the first trip that, that I took where, um, yeah, one of the places that we went was the garbage dump because in Tijuana, as in, all third world countries, the garbage dumps are the place where the poorest of the poor work, mm-hmm. and so I met people who were supporting their families by digging through the trash and they were getting anything they could that was recyclable, so it might be cans or bottles or electrical wire that they would strip, um, anything usable that they could get out of the dump and that 's how they supported their families and they they lived right next to the garbage dump on, on old compacted garbage where they had built houses out of old pallets and bed springs and anything they had, had gleaned from the garbage dump. And, and it was just amazing to meet people and, and have them invite us into their homes. And they were proud to show us how they did things and where they lived. And oh, that's wonderful. They, I think that was the thing that surprised me the most is they were proud of the work they were doing. Because to me it was pretty hard and horrendous and dirty. Oh my gosh! So what? It was not where I wanted to live.
1: How did you and the the youth from uh, St. Francis High School minister to them that summer?
3: So that summer we it was we went from place to place. So we were in the garbage dump. We took food to them um, at lunchtime, and uh, just kind of hung out and, and listened to stories, played soccer. Uh, with some of the kids, you know, with old soccer balls, just little things. And and that eventually that grew into doing schools there in the garbage dump um, after a couple of summers. Mm-hmm. You know, so a variety of things. We got into some building projects, although we were never really big on building projects. We visited prisons. We visited orphanages.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, so it was a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Th- I think one of the one of the most, touching things for me in the beginning was one time we visited an orphanage called Casa de Cuna, Uh and they had all the little kids that were about, they were toddlers. They were all sitting in high chairs waiting for lunch. And um, somebody handed me a bowl and a spoon. And I took the bowl full of mashed up food and the spoon and went from one kid to the next with the same spoon and the same bowl and just fed them one, one spoonful at a time. And then started back at the beginning of the row until all of the food was gone and you know i realized they passed on all their germs and everything well that, that, it that, was just it's
1: sharing just like in a family
3: yeah yeah, yeah 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 these are kids who were in an orphanage and they weren't necessarily without parents but many of the parents were too poor to take care of them because they had to work and so the parents would leave them in what they called these orphanages and then they would sometimes pick them up on the weekends and take them home. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, a couple of days ago, I sent you an email and said that after thinking about some of what you've done throughout your your process of ministry, that the people in the dump sort of epitomized what you do. They were recycling things, and much of your ministry was recycling people, the people that Excellent. that that— that uh, society had cast away. And you, most of your ministry yeah. has been trying to get those people back to where they're usable or have yeah. a useful life.
3: Yeah. And a lot of, we've seen, we've seen more of that, I guess, visibly here in South Carolina, where we are now, um, than we have seen in many years, I guess, because especially when Pete was working with people here who lived in the woods, um, there was a whole community. And one by one, those individuals or families got back in touch with family and wherever they come from. uh, They got in touch with people who could give them jobs and places to live, and we were able to send them, because they didn't have the funds to do it, but we were able to send them back to jobs and family and places to live pretty extraordinary
1: yes um, i want to talk about i want to talk about that more in a little bit but i want to hear a little bit Mm -hmm. about the ministry that you did in arizona over the years because what happened there is just amazing to me how that developed and the relationships that you developed with the people on the reservation
3: yeah yeah we we loved it um Father Elias, who was our contact, was stationed in a place called Pissimao, Arizona, on the Tohono O'odham Indian Reservation. And we went to deliver a truckload of food and clothes to him one Easter. And I said to Sister Patrice, because there were three Franciscan sisters living there, and then Father Elias was living in a, a separate house. I said, is there anything else we can do for you? And Sister Patrice said, the boarding schools are closing because a lot of these kids had gone away to boarding school. And all the kids are going to be home on the reservation and they don't have anything to do in the summer. Can we start a camp? And in our, in our uh, dumb innocence, we <laughs> said, sure we can. <laughs> So we made arrangements to go back a couple of months later and do a camp for them. That started in 1986, I believe. Mm-hmm. And we started with nine counselors mm-hmm. from California. We, the sisters went out to each of the villages. Cause in those days on the Tone reservation, the villages were very far apart and they didn't really have communication between them. You had to go to the village. There were no telephones. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so it, it was very primitive. Um, and so the sisters would go out and visit when they would have mass, the priest would travel around from village to village doing mass, and the sisters would follow him and they would say to the people, we're going to have a camp this summer and the people would say what's camp because nobody had ever gone to camp and they would explain that we were going to have crafts and sports and games and some religious activities and the kids were all invited and that we would come and pick them up because there's no transportation for them to get to us, some of the villages being as far as 50 miles away. So by the time we got there in July for the camp, the sisters said they'd been out to all the villages, and they thought we might have 35 kids come. Mm -hmm. So we had prepared for 35 kids. And the first day of camp, we started, and the vans went out in three different directions. By the time all the vans came back and all the kids from the local village came in, we had 55 kids. And we just, we kind of punted that day. We, we had to rearrange everything because we thought that they were going to be third grade through twelfth grade. Turns out that the youngest was three, <laughs> and the oldest was 18. <laughs> so we, yeah. And, and just-
1: and you came, into yes, a, you came into a culture that was very different from the culture that you came from.
3: Uh, oh, my gosh. Yes, we we were we realized, you know, a day into this that the Ta'ana O'odham are very quiet people. Um, they love to have fun. We know that now. But when they meet somebody new, They are very quiet, and it was like pulling teeth
2: to even get their names. We were the weird Westerners that came (laughs) and said, howdy-doody, and they were the ones that would look down at the ground, and we would uh, try to get eye contact with them, and we had to get underneath them. I would, and I'd say, how are you? And they wouldn't look at me. Uh, They were still looking at the ground. I didn't learn until later that the kids, the power came from the top of their heads. And so they were trying to give us power to the top of their head.
1: <laughs> but that changed with we time, had, didn't it? How they related to you? Oh
2: yeah, yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the second year we had some of the teens that came out to California for leadership training at a camp that we had in Los Altos Hills. It was multicultural. They did that for many years, mm-hmm. um, and then they went back and did camp with us. We we kept growing. The camp kept growing. These days now we're. Gosh, 1986, we're at, 8 we're, we're
2: 2018.
3: what? How many years into this? 30-something. Right. Quite a few. Yeah, we're 33 years, I guess, into this. And, there's, and there's eventually, you had,
1: eventually, you had to leave, the, let this go because God was calling you to something else. Yeah.
3: Well, yeah. yeah. God called Pete to fall off a mountain. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I want to yeah. talk yeah.
1: about that a little bit because there are, Pete, had, you mentioned, and again, I'm talking with Pete and Sue Fullerton of Truck of Love, and their website is truckoflove.org. And Pete, you had two accidents, and you talked about being a musician, and one of those affected your ability to play the guitar for a while, and the other one affected yeah. your ability to do almost everything else that you were doing for Truck of Love. Would you like to talk Maybe about those, right. or would you talk to the, with, those, sure, uh, with us about those for just a second?
2: I can't remember the year it was, but it was uh, the Super Bowl 16, and it was when it was at Stanford Stadium, and I was in a hurry to get out and hear all the cheers and and get back in and watch the TV because in those days, if they sold out uh, the area, then you could watch it on TV. and when they would cheer, you could run outside and hear them cheer from Stanford Stadium from where we were. And so in that particular weekend. Uh, I, it was my I had to put up a fence, and so I made a quick exit out at halftime to put a fence post in, and I pulled the the lock which was the the guard against the saw blade, and I rammed my fingers into it because the lock came off, came underneath the piece of wood and went thunk 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 and took out three of my fingers, so I didn't hear the rest of the the football game. Uh, <laughs> you were you
1: were in a, know, a local hospital happened. weren't you <laughs>
3: yes yeah. Yeah. yeah i i had been out with the kids at a basketball game and i came home and the neighbor met me and he said something's happened and he said i'll take care of the kids i went to the hospital and i found pete in the emergency room with a piece of gauze over his hand and i i didn't know what had happened so i said uh can i look and so I took the gauze off and lo and behold, there were no fingers there. Yeah. yeah they were shortened. At least but around. I can <laughs> I can
1: testify that even after that, Pete is quite adept at playing the guitar because I remember his playing and singing at the retreat that we were at.
2: There yeah. Have
3: it. People are always surprised that he plays when they really look at his hands because mm-hmm. <laughs> he plays with those stumps of fingers. <laughs>
2: yeah. And then you're asking about the, the legs. Well, I was, Climbing, it was it was early morning, and we were trying to get away from the kids for a weekend. We went to a place called Window Rock down on the edge of the Sonoran Desert, Mexico, and the Sonoran Desert, Arizona. And Window Rock is up on a ledge with a 155-foot cliff. And between the place I was sitting and the 155-foot cliff was a ledge 35 feet down. And I was overlooking this beautiful Mexican valley. And it was about 9 o'clock, and somebody said, it's time for sandwiches. And so I got up and started wandering toward that direction, and I grabbed for a rock, and it wasn't there because my fingers were too short, I guess. But I, I actually pulled at the rock, and the rock fell down with me. And mm. I, when I hit, I aimed for a rock that was a little bit above that, that spot 35 feet down on the edge of the ledge. And I rolled slowly enough so that I could stop myself and claw myself to uh, the edge of where the actual cliff was, away from the 105-50 foot drop. Myself before I went over that. And so I I survived, but it took a long time to get my rehabilitation back together.
1: And you lost a foot yeah. as a result. You, you lost yeah.
2: your yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah,
1: but that didn't slow yeah. well, you down the- much.
3: Yeah, that's right. It slowed him down for about six months. <laughs> God told me that I would be all together when I go to heaven. I'm
2: just going to meet my foot and fingers, so no, I'm fine.
3: We, we like to say he's going to heaven piece by piece. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> you, uh,
1: when your father died, Pete, something happened that made a big difference in your life, that uh, you were able to do something that you'd never been able to do before, and your children told you what you needed to do. Is that correct?
3: Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. The, when Pete's dad died, he had not oh, been a big dad, fan dad. Of, of what we were doing. And we always thought, oh, gee, you know. He really didn't like kind of what we were doing. <laughs> he thought no. poor people were, mm-hmm. were not uh, worthy of much. But we were surprised because he left us
2: an inheritance. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite understand which dad you were talking about. Uh, my first dad, um, I watched him die. And that was when I was three. And then my second dad, he was kind of a loner. And uh, as a loner, he kind of kept to himself. And when I was in high school, he thought I was gay. And that was that. You know, I just never really had much to do with him. Turns out that he had this quiet passion for, for me and the family. And I underestimated him. And I asked God for forgiveness all the time on that one. But he gave us the money that we needed. And... We were going to give the money to our kids, but they said no, no, no. You buy a house. So we bought our first house.
3: We did. We we in fact before we before he died, we had been looking at little tiny apartments because we were anticipating growing older and having less income than we had, even on my income. And uh, we'd been looking at tiny apartments. When we bought the house, everything changed because mm-hmm. all of a sudden we could build equity. Uh
1: huh. And what if, when the time came, you there's Further on, when you retired, you made a decision that you needed to move from the south end of the Bay Area to somewhere else. And how, how was that decision
3: made? Well, we talked for a long time. We drove all around California looking for other places to live. But California was way too expensive. And we realized we were going to be living on our Social Security. So uh, living in California, obviously, us at an advantage because not very many other places are as expensive so we were able to decide to sell we had made a couple of trips across the country we realized we needed to be near at least one of our children they were all spread around the world by this time and we had a son in charlotte and south carolina was the absolute cheapest place possible to live because the taxes here were next to nothing compared to what california had been so we could sell our house in san jose and we could buy a house outright here we we paid cash for it and we could put a little bit of money into the banks so we actually could have a little bit of savings for emergencies while living on our social security so we just bit the bullet and said this is what we have to do and but you we went for it
1: but god also tested you there because the Bottom dro- dropped out of the housing market about the time you would sell, right? <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> this was in 2009. And so in the middle of escrow, uh, the the couple that were buying the house had an FHA loan. And in the middle of escrow, they devalued our house and, and they lowered the price of what they would pay. And so we, we said, hey, you know, we don't need a lot and even – even at the devalued amount, we still were gonna have enough, so we went for it. You no, know, we, we didn't need it. we just didn't need the extra, I guess. You know, okay. Now so,
1: so <laughs> you ended up in Rock Hill. And and we're we, we're running short on time. So I want to talk a little bit about what happened in Rock Hill. You just sort of left the ministry in California in somebody else's hands and you moved to Rock Hill yeah. and oddly enough, you started a ministry very similar to that, but different in Rock Hill.
2: Well, we are odd. We are very odd. And, <laughs> and that's the way we do things. We, we pick up where we left off, but we never left anything here. We just picked up. And in California, there was a lot to do. And there was a lot of people that I had been working, I think 270-some-odd families. And I took each one of those families and handed them off. And as those families were handed off, our spectrum of need there narrowed down to where Sue and I could leave the the California area and come here. And then when we got here, we had nothing going on. So I just went out and started looking just like I always do. And, you know, you shake hands with a neighbor, you go to the church, you go to the soup kitchen. Well, I should say, I go to the church. I go to the (laughs) soup kitchen and Sue followed me. And now Sue runs the ministry of the church, literally runs it. And then I have my own ministry going with truck of love, which I share with Sue Right here, down at the end of our block. And it's working out perfectly. So
3: Pete's now working. In the beginning, he, he had run into some people who lived in the woods. So who were so basically homeless. And they, yeah. oh, they, the people living in the woods were absolutely homeless.
2: Absolutely. They, yeah, sure. they, were,
3: they were people who had lost jobs, lost places to live. And this was the bottom rung. There was, you know, there's no place lower to go than living in the woods. And that's right. So there were, on, uh, over a four-year period, there were probably 100 people who came through that community, yes. and all but three, he was able to get back to home and
2: job and places to live. And it wasn't really that big uh, or herculean effort. It, I just put it together. After we had done our, our community building, our prayer building together, I, we discovered that each one of the people had not only their own story, but a family that had somehow disenfranchised them a long time ago, along with their disenfranchisement of them, and I got them together, and once I did, I would give them a bus ticket and a little bit of money, and off they'd go, whether it was Oklahoma, or whether it was Texas, or wherever it was in the United States, where I worked it down to only three people in the woods, and they only wanted to stay in the woods. That was fine, but the rest of them, they wanted to go home.
1: You had one of the things that strikes me uh, in reading your book, House of Yes, about being in the woods was the young young people and River in particular. Could you talk a little bit about your minister to the uh, young people and tell us about River and what happened to River?
2: My love, my River, River was the sweetest little boy you'd ever want to meet in your life. He, He would he would always put things in the way he understood them. Like, I would say, how would you like a nativity set? He, he would say, what is nativity? And then he would answer his own question by saying, oh, is that nativity when Jesus loves everybody and shares it? And I'd say, yes, that's what nativity is. And that, in his own little sweet way, would be enough understanding of what he was talking about. Ultimately, he had a brain aneurysm or a brain tumor. Brain tumor. And he died uh, right out there in the woods.
1: But he died in your yeah, truck, wasn't it? Uh, As I recall in the book, he died yeah. in your truck coming back from the hospital. Yeah.
2: That's
3: correct. Yeah. So, so River had headaches for several days. We think he was about 17. Uh, and when they finally got him to the hospital, the doctor said he had a, a geoblastoma, which is a terribly invasive brain tumor. And River wanted to go home, and he wanted to go home. So they put him back in the truck, and on the way
2: home, he died. And, uh, Something that's not in the book, I don't think. But it is to me, critical. And that is that he said, Michael is coming to see you. He said he knows you. Do you know a Michael? And I said, Michael, well, I know a lot of Michaels. Uh, it is in the book that, that he had come and seen me. Well, it turns out that he said he's, he's an archangel. I said, oh, that Michael. <laughs> so, yeah, it was wonderful. It, he came and he said hello and he hugged me and he took off. Um, I had met Michael in Mountain View. And he said he was Michael the Archangel. And darn thing is, is, he didn't change. He looked the same. He had the same kind of auburn colored hair, same auburn curly beard, and the same blouse of a, a shirt. that was a v-neck and a khaki pants and same sandals. I thought, well, you know, this is really some kind of miraculous thing. So I pray with him every day.
1: Uh, we are about out of time. And I, there's okay. so much more I'd like to say and hear and have our audience here. I We've been talking with Pete and Sue Fullerton, whose ministry is Truck of Love, uh, and their website is truckoflove.org. If you want to hear more or read, find out more about this ministry, how it developed, in, uh, read, House yes. read House of Yes. Read House of Yes. It's available on Amazon, or it's available, I believe, through your website. And then Pete has a book yeah. that he re- wrote, which is called Old Dream," and We didn't even get to talk about the dream that Pete got to live out. Uh, that's Pete, fine. Pete and Sue, we have people I know in this area that want to minister to people just like you have, and maybe they don't know what to do. What do you – just quickly, what would you tell them, somebody that's thinking that they, you know, they want to minister to the poor?
3: Yeah, uh, I w- always say to people start small you know, get involved with a soup kitchen get involved with a shelter look at what you like to do and just get involved in a small way and then go from there um, I've, we've met a lot of people who've had big ideas and those big ideas don't always make it but the, when you start one step at a time
2: uh, and simply if you want to live life free take your time go slowly do a few things but do them well. Simple things are holy. Yes. And
1: Pete Pete and Sue, thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, If people want to make a donation to Truck of Love, they can do that via your website. Again, that's truckoflove.org. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye to all of our listeners. And remember, when choosing between the values of heaven and the values of earth, always round up.
2: Amen.